Season 2 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. I'd like to welcome my guest for this episode of the Casting Light Podcast, Miriam Nilofakro. Miriam is a lighting designer with nearly 20 years' experience. Uh, Miriam, yeah. you say that's true? Uh, yeah, I've been in New York uh, 19 years now. So Okay. Yeah. So among other things, you're the lighting designer for Roseanne Cash, Leela Downs, Princeton University, Corio Dance Theater, and the Strindberg Repertory Company? Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, you've designed lighting for theater and musical performances all over the U.S., and you've got a couple and, of ALD credits on Broadway? Yeah. Uh, that was with Alan Lee Hughes and David Cunningham, right? Uh, that's correct, yeah. And, and I also uh, assisted Greg Mee on a... I was an assistant special effects designer on 45 Seconds from Broadway. Oh, I saw that. I want to ask you Which, more about that. Actually, oh. what does that mean, assistant special effects designer? Uh, well, so Greg Mee does special effects. Um, so oh, that, as in Yashim and me. Yeah, exactly. So for that show, we did uh, rain, mostly, and snow. Um, he also does a lot of like pyrotechnics and stuff, but it wasn't that play. And so in addition to all of that, you're also a member of Wingspace Theatrical Design. That's true, yeah. And you're a Yaley, but we won't hold that against you, I promise. I, I am a Yaley, uh, twice over. Uh, multiple, oh, really? Well, yeah. yeah I, so tell me about that. Uh, well, I went to college there, and I majored in English, and then uh, I moved to New York, and I worked for about six years, and then I went back to grad school, uh, to the School of Drama, and uh, studied lighting design. So you got your BA in English there? I got my BA in English, yeah. How did that turn into lighting design? So the, the BA in English is, is like sort of uh, what I was doing in my free time uh, when I wasn't doing theater. Yale College has a pretty small theater studies program. It's all acting, playwriting, and directing. There's no uh, design classes. There's no uh, technical classes of any kind. I actually never took a theater studies class in the time that I was at Yale. There's like an enormous amount of theater going on extracurricularly. The sort of biggest entity is the Yale Dramatic Association, which is about 120 years old now, I think. Uh, Cole Porter was an alum. And they produce, it's basically like a not-for-profit theater operated by undergraduates. Uh, so they produce a full season every year. There's no adult supervision. Uh, really, or very, very little. Uh, or there wasn't in the 90s, anyway. I think there's a little bit more now. So it's basically a bunch of undergraduates like on their own to produce theater. And, that sounds like fun. And not get killed. Uh, it's amazing, yeah. It's, uh, it's an amazing training uh, ground because everything is your problem, everything is your fault, and nobody will save you but you. And a lot of the people uh, that I went through that program with are still working in theater now. So I encounter people around town all the time. So you came to New York after you were done there? Uh, yeah, I moved to New York. I did a lot of assisting. Um, I assisted people that I had met in the drama school while I was in college. Matt Fry was a guy I assisted all the time. And I did a lot of electrics work. Um, I sort of naturally gravitated to programming because I'm better at that than I am at carrying large objects up ladders. Um, so I did a lot of programming and follow spot operation and uh, designed a ton of tiny shows in tiny theaters all over town. Then after six years of that, I went back to get my master's at the School of Drama. 
and then I came back. That was that. What, so what, what kind of things were you doing during that lull between the two degrees? Oh, well, I did... Oh, actually, uh, that's when I started working at the Lincoln Center Festival also. Uh, pretty much, uh, it was just about the first thing I did after I moved to New York. A friend of mine, Aaron Kopp, was uh, designing a Merce Cunningham show in the Lincoln Center Festival, and he asked me to stop by, uh, you know, just to hang out and meet people. And uh, by the end of the evening, I had become the first ever lighting intern of the Lincoln Center Festival oh, in wow. 1996, um, just because I showed up and they hadn't thought about getting an intern. Uh, and then I uh, worked there for basically the next 10 years uh, in the summer as a lighting supervisor, well, an associate lighting supervisor for the festival. That's sort of yeah. job that, that can have lots and lots of different meanings. What did it mean in this case? Uh, in well, for, first, why don't you tell us what the Lincoln Center Festival is? Oh, so the Lincoln Center Festival is a major performing arts festival that happens every summer in New York. Uh, it's three weeks in July. Uh, they've changed the footprint of it a little bit um, since, and it's uh, theater, dance, and music from all over the world. Uh, so it's sort of uh, like being on the receiving end of like every tour ever. And so what does the lighting supervisor do? Stan Pressner was the lighting supervisor for the entire festival. And then there were a group of assistant lighting supervisors working under him, and we were uh, assigned to a venue, uh, pretty much, and we were sort of the anchor point uh, between the incoming company and the festival and the rental house and the venue. Uh, we were sort of the uh, liaison between all of those entities, trying to uh, keep everything coordinated and running smoothly. So if... Um, if everything was going well, uh, we actually didn't have to do a whole lot. Uh, if everything was going badly, um, we had to make a lot of phone calls, basically. So you got plots from these touring companies, and you had to sort of make them work in within the con con confines of the Lincoln Center Festival yeah. venues. Yeah, and Lincoln Center Festival uh, tries very hard to uh, accommodate everything that the company is asking for. Uh, so, and And the show's... Uh, were standing alone, so we would do a load-in for every show. Uh, so we were never really trying to force their show into a rep plot or anything like that. We pretty much were just doing what they presented. Uh, we did our best to accommodate the uh, rental stuff that they needed. Uh, and actually, we had a, we had like a pretty extensive lighting budget, and you know we would you know get trucks and trucks of equipment from PRG. Uh, so in May, we would get the, uh, you know, we would try to get them to send us the information and we would uh, go through it in a lot of detail and usually redraft it ourselves uh, into the space, mostly to make sure that somebody had looked at every single thing and understood it and uh, could get back to them with questions. Uh, and then we would uh, put together the rental package, uh, Stan would do that and uh, negotiate about the money. And then the festival would start and, you know, it would be like a, a swift, you know, toboggan ride through the next three weeks. All right. Um, and hanging out with Stan Perth over a couple of months, that's always fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was definitely, a, definitely an interesting, uh, interesting time. I certainly learned a lot from Stan. He's a really interesting guy. You can talk about people with experience, you know. It's uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 
Um, oh, you know, another thing that uh, was actually interesting about that time is I was there. Uh, I was there across the advent of email. Uh, <laughs> so in the in the beginning years of the festival. Uh, like, I, I swear I'm not making this up, like actual pieces of paper would cross the Atlantic Ocean in FedEx packages, you know, and it would, time would elapse and then we would get them and, you know, then we would have to call them back. Uh, but uh, eventually we started being able to attach things to email and then uh, things could make that trip instantly. So and somehow it didn't reduce anyone's workload. No, no, it didn't um, because... Uh, you get everything faster, so then there's just more. It just reduced waiting time, I think. So you're there from like 95 to 05, uh, right? And more or less. I, um, yeah, I guess I did work there in the summers while I was in grad school, and then I maybe did a year or so after that. Maybe 06. Oh, 96 to 06 was probably. Okay. And what else were you doing while you were doing that? Because it was only during the summers. Yeah, that was only during the summers. Um, boy, this, this, is, this is the distant past here. In that period of my life, I probably had every job it was possible to have inside Juilliard. Uh, I designed in the small theater. I programmed. I ran follow spots. Uh, so I did a lot of electrics calls of the public and um, just uh, did a lot of assisting and designing a lot of small shows at places like here and uh, Nada. How would you describe your current place in the industry? Uh, so my... Career has uh, had a lot of variety in it, uh, and I think it's because I'm interested in a lot of different things. Uh, I remember uh, when I was quite a bit younger, somebody asking me if I wanted to focus on theater or dance or opera or, or what I wanted to focus on, and I couldn't really answer the question. And I realized that it's because uh, what I actually wanted to work on were shows that I would be interested in seeing as an audience member, which leaves me like quite a lot of leeway of things to <laughs> things to uh, pursue. So I've been incredibly fortunate to be able to work on a variety of shows that I have really liked. And has that been um, sort of a guiding force in your decisions about what, 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 which way to proceed? I think so. I mean, I I, I won't lie. I certainly like. I can't actually think of an instance of me turning down work because I, I didn't like it that much. But um, I think I, I feel like it's definitely like led me towards like working with people I like and whose stuff I like. Um, it, it's sort of, it's sort of it's sort of been more about like what I chose to do more than. So what's your current choose. like time split like theater versus music versus dance? Yeah, it's funny. I. Uh, I haven't actually thought too much about my time, but I recently made myself an Excel spreadsheet to find out uh, where my income was coming from. Uh, and I have found that the last couple of years, it's been about 50% music, uh, touring, and in town. And the balance of theater has shifted a little bit in the last, uh, sort of in the past few years, it had been about 20% uh, theater, 50% music, and then 30% uh, other things like being a lighting supervisor, or I do a little bit of assisting sometimes, or um, and some venue consulting as well, right? Some venue. Well, that has actually been a new thing that uh, I've just started doing this year, and that uh, I realized like has been about twenty percent of this year, and theater has sort of like shrunk. So, um, so we'll see sort of what that uh, leads to in the future. Um, I find it very interesting, but it's a completely different. 
project than designing a show. Uh, I've been saying it's about 30% lighting and about 70% uh, explaining things to people, you know, and explaining where their money is going to go and sort of creating proposals for what you're hoping to do and then budgeting it and then figuring out what they can afford. And so it's like much, much more of that part of it and less of the actual lighting I found. That's definitely been my experience. Yeah. So you uh, you spend about half your time on music. So let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Sort of. I know that you work with a lot of high profile artists, but not necessarily ones that tour with, say, you know, two trucks worth of equipment. You know, tour yeah. artists that don't really tour with very much at all. Uh, yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I've never done that kind of a tour with with you know trucks and and stuff. So how does that plan. work? Uh, well, planes and trains and automobiles. Uh, so. You know, since we've spoken to several people who have been, you know, touring LDs with like, you know, X band that either, you know, carries their rig or only plays festivals where they're going to have, you know, whatever rig where they can clone their fixtures in, or, and right. this is a very, very different, different thing. So tell me, like, sort of, yeah, about it. Right. So I, like, I, I like to say that. So uh, well, I'll, I'll talk about two uh, shows in particular. Um, Leela Downs. Uh, who I've been working with since about 2007. Um, I haven't been doing so much with her in the last couple of years. And Roseanne Cash, uh, whom I've been working with since January of last year, uh, 2014. One of my favorite artists. She's, she's fantastic. It's, um, she's really amazing. So the music industry, of course, is for profit. Uh, so a lot of decisions are driven or, or sort of start from a place of uh, economics. And uh, you have to um, conceive what you're doing within the uh, framework that they're able to support, uh, because that's just, uh, you know, that's the only option you have. Um, in Roseanne's case, uh, she has a lot of space in her touring schedule, uh, because she still has, or she and her husband still have a, a teenager at home, uh, so they like to be at home. Uh, they don't want to, you know, go out on tour for weeks on end. Uh, so they like to do a short, like, weekend runs, you know, two, three days here, come back home, you know, two, three days there. Uh, so, and, uh, you know, it's completely understandable to me that they would want to do that under the circumstances, but it does place a lot of limitations on the scope. It, it basically means that you're limited to using equipment that's in the venues because there's no way you could uh, assemble equipment just for two days and you know and then store it somewhere or something it would be absurdly expensive um even touring with a bobtail on the back of the bus wouldn't be wouldn't make sense because you're not bringing a bus we don't even have a bus yeah we we just fly um or or rent a van sometimes um so i, I say it's like i have the platonic form of the show in my mind and then uh, every day I have to figure out how I'm going to uh, create that out of the items that I have available to me in the venue that day. Uh, and I, I do try to uh, do at least some of that process ahead of time. Uh, so I get them to send me as much information as they can. And then I uh, send back uh, sort of my notes about what I would like to do with their plot. Uh, I have avoided... Uh, drawing a plot for Roseanne Cash for a couple of reasons. First of all, I feel that the venues that we go to are really various. Uh, so 
I feel like if you've drawn a plot with like actual lights on it in like actual positions, uh, people become very attached to that information. And the decisions that you have made on your generic plot might not actually be right for every venue you go to. But if people have that piece of paper in their hands, they'll really, really want to, uh, you know, provide you with those things. I know what you, and, mean. you know, so the, they'll be like, there must be four of those things in this spot, and that might not be the right choice for that venue on that yeah. day. So um, I find it better to sort of just skip that and do sort of an epistolary advance, um, in which, it, it, like, an epistolary novel is a novel. Uh, that's comprised of letters people are writing back and forth. Um, like so Dracula. I, like Dracula, yeah, yeah, or Dangerous Liaisons. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I get their information, I read it, and then I just write a lot of notes about what I uh, want them to do with it and send that back and then see how far they get to. Uh, so, some places uh, sort of are able to prepare ahead of time more thoroughly than others. So how um, how do you determine what this platonic ideal of the show is going to be? Well, that uh, or, how, or how do you like lay it out uh, if without without a plot? Do how, you, like what 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 like, what do you start from? Cue sheets? Like what where, where where do you start? I feel like the sort of form of the show develops over the course of the first like five or ten stops. Uh, so. Uh, I mean, you start with the music, obviously, and just getting to know that really well. Uh, in the case of Roseanne's show, well, really all these shows, um, there's a video designer also involved. So for Roseanne's show, he... Um, oh, I should mention, actually, that Roseanne's show is very consistent uh, because uh, in the first half of the show that I've been working on, she does the new album, The River and the Thread, uh, in sequence. She does the whole album. And the first half of the show is always that. And then the second half has developed more or less a structure over time, but there is some more variation in that. So I, I feel like in the first maybe five or ten performances, right, we're all trying to figure it out together uh, because they're trying to get a handle on what the set list is and trying different options. Um, the video designer has uh, created... A series of things uh, to go with the songs in the album, uh, but he's trying things out too uh, and switching things out from night to night. And I probably work the most closely with um, the video designer, really. And, you know, we meet and go through what he's thinking about and sort of look at the images and talk over it. So I guess he and I sort of met and talked over what he was thinking a little bit, and we agreed that sort of the feeling of the show is vintage. It doesn't really uh, call for anything flashy, like not really moving or chasing or anything like that. Um, yeah, yeah, I like the, the hand motions you were the, making there to, oh, to go along with the moving and changing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do we have them on radio and you can't, <laughs> and you folks can't, can't, you see, can't it. see them. Yeah, I'm sort of swirling <laughs> my hands around. Um, I... <laughs> Uh, there, I feel like there's a lot of uh, sort of music lighting effects that can best be described that way um, by waving your hands around. But um, it's so true. Um, but it, it's really this show really isn't. Uh, it's really not about that. It's really like focused on the music and the lyrics, and um, you know, because Roseanne is uh, such a compelling performer, and you know, her voice is so clear, and you know. 
really want people to have that experience without distractions and just to be able to focus on that. So then I, I just sort of picked some colors that we started with. And uh, as we went along, I sort of kept notes about what I was doing uh, in the moment and sort of you know, made notes for myself about what worked and what didn't work. And we sort of changed things as we went along. I think of it as previews forever, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't feel any obligation to keep doing exactly the same thing from night to night. Um, I do, you know, by the time I've been doing the show for a while, I have like sort of developed a, a set of things that I do. But uh, so, sometimes a lot of the things we discover along the way are just accidents. You know, one venue didn't really have a ground row, uh, but they had a bunch of parkans uh, that they just put on the floor uh, behind the psych for some reason. So we pointed them at the psych and we made like a little low line uh, at the sort of at the bottom and it fills in the bottom of the video image. Uh, but it's now become a thing I try to reproduce uh, when I can and when there's enough space uh, for that. And I sort of wind up using it as punctuation and um, also to fill in the bottom of the video image. Yeah, it's just things develop over time uh, in your mind. By now I have cues. Actually, I don't write cues, um, actually, because I don't have time. Um, I, should, I should mention that usually we travel in the morning and we come into the venue at, say, 1 o'clock or 2 or, God forbid, 3.30. Um, and then we have the show that night, so I don't have a lot of time to actually do anything. Wow. So um, can you take me through the process there, of like from the time you arrive at the venue? You know, knowing that you've told them what you're planning to do, and hopefully they've had some chance to prepare. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully they've hopefully they've dropped uh, color in the things that I've asked them to. Um, and I'm also hoping when I've arrived that they've more or less focused the systems. Uh, so, you know, if we're in a sort of standard performing arts center situation, I hope that like the side light is basically focused and the backlight is basically focused and. There's some kind of front wash. Uh, so when we come in at 1 o'clock, the uh, front of house engineer and I uh, spend some time uh, shoving things around. Uh, the first thing we do is we pick Roseanne's spot, uh, which is based on some combination of the ideal uh, spot for lighting and uh, sort of the more important factor is where she is in relation to the front fills. You know, so we, we sort of agree on a spot that is good for both of us, you know, and then we build the rest of the stage around it. They're a pretty compact uh, little bunch. And the other thing that is uh, really helpful for me about this show is they don't like to move around. Um, oh, that's great for music. Yeah, it's really, uh, they like, you know, they have, uh, they have their monitor wedges, so they're not on in-ears. So they like, they get themselves set in their spot and they stay there. Um, Roseanne, I don't use a follow spot in this show because she doesn't move from that spot. Uh, and when she does, it's because she's backing up uh, out of her light because somebody else has a solo and she wants to give them the stage. So so we want to not follow her. So after you have the stage yeah. more set up, then what happens? And then I focus the specials around that. And But I'm basically, I'm trying to get off the stage as quickly as possible uh, with the genie lift or whatever. Um, and then, uh, then we jump out to the front of house as the, you know, as the band is coming in to set up. In my in my dream scenario, I'm totally, uh, I'm totally focused before the band shows up. 
then they have sort of they have a long period where the guys just play and sort of mess around and then uh I would like to have my submasters in the board by the time Roseanne comes out on stage uh, because that's my only chance to look at anything before the show. And so, you, so you primarily work off of subs. I, yeah, it's all it's all subs. Yeah, I have uh, I have a little sub layout. I uh, at the end oh I should have brought one, but uh, at the end of the night I'll take my board tape. I actually uh, I don't use the labels that like come in the board because I can't read those little digital things. So I I have my tape and I sit there and I write it out with a pen. And then at the end of the night, I'll actually pull those off and stick it to the back of my set list and uh, write what console it was in the corner. Um, <laughs> so that the next time I encounter one of those, I know like what my strategy was about how to set it up. So I try very hard to have my subs in the board before Roseanne gets out on stage uh, because she won't be there very long. She's, uh, she's very efficient. Uh, she's been doing this for a long time. Uh, she knows exactly what she wants out of her monitors, and she can explain that. So even if I still have some sort of like other programming I have to do, I'll often just like stop uh, that part and, and uh, just watch what happens and you know, make sure that I have her levels adjusted correctly. And um, that's kind of it. So it's, uh, it's really fast. The big variable for me lately has been LEDs uh, and how they're controlled. We sort of started this run with the idea that it would all be conventional and we wouldn't use anything automated or LED. And that idea has uh, pretty much been thrown out the window because the LEDs are everywhere now. That's just what people have. There are cases where it would actually be hard to get them to hang an entire incandescent plot. Um, and I've, I've actually come to like it. I, um, I've sort of gotten used to having the extra like saturation and the extra pop, and I've been using that. That's probably the biggest variable in my console setup. Whether or not we have LEDs and what systems are LEDs and how I'm going to approach the uh, color changes in the show. Very often the best scenario is that I have a sub that is just the intensity for each group of LEDs, and then I have some sort of like color picking software open. Uh, you know, like the color picker on the, on the EOS is my personal favorite. Um, and then I'll just have some sort of like quick select setup so I can, if I have a couple of groups of LEDs, so I can like quickly grab them and just do it like that. How did you get connected with Roseanne? Actually, via a couple of routes, um, DJ Mendel, her video designer, and I had worked together before. Uh, he directed a piece called Symphony for the Dance Floor uh, by Daniel Bernard Romain. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. His name I haven't heard in a while, but he's awesome. He's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, he's really cool. But this uh, Symphony for the Dance Floor was kind of more of a variety show uh, in a way. And there, there were dancers, and, and there, was a, there was a DJ, and, and so, so there was a DJ, and also the director was DJ Mendel, mm -hmm. uh, not to be confused with the DJ. And there was dance, and I don't know, it was a bunch of stuff. So we did that uh, probably four or five times in early 2011. Um, and then DJ had been working with Roseanne for some time, and he recommended me to her. And... Also, uh, Owen Hughes at St. Anne's Warehouse. He and I actually know each other from college. And 
uh, I guess Roseanne's manager had been asking uh, just various people he knew to recommend lighting designers, and Owen also recommended me. Okay. So there you go. So it was sort of a two-pronged, two-pronged recommendation there. And how yeah. is how is what you do with Roseanne different from Leela Downs? Uh, well, with Leela, it's more. Um, it, the show is, is flashier, uh, and it can support more of that sort of like traditional rock stuff and more, you know, like, woo, and I'm swirling my hands in a, <laughs> in a dramatic hand gesture. And, uh, you know, it, it can sort of support uh, more of that type of thing. Um, we usually have a little more time for that show, by which I mean we load in at 10 a.m., uh, not one, which is a world can, of difference. You can do a lot in three hours. You sure can, I tell you. Um, but again, I sort of, I did most of my touring with Leela uh, sort of in the late, in the in the late aughts, uh, like, you know, 2007, 8, 9. Uh, lately, I've done more, you know, just like, you know, one night here or one night there, sort of like shorter engagements. I feel like if I came back to that show now, it probably would have changed quite a bit just with the advent of LEDs. And, uh, you know, I feel like the technology uh, would have would have sort of taken it to a different place. So I'd really have to revisit. I had all these conventional chases that I wrote. I actually believe that I am one of the world's foremost experts in writing conventional chases on obscure European lighting consoles. Um, oh, it's a uh, yeah. It's too bad I couldn't become one of the world's foremost experts in something like actually useful, like <laughs> like cancer research or something. But um, anyway, I have this fount of uh, obscure knowledge. Um, I have a lot of notes, uh, stuff I developed along the way. But um, on, a, on an AVAB, yeah, or an LT Hydra scan, not to be confused with the LT Hydra sky. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 a jungle out there. Yeah, so uh, so that show is really built around a lot of uh, that stuff. And when we had moving lights, it was more just like gravy, uh, you know. And we'd have, you know, maybe we'd have like a whole rig of of parkans, and then we'd have like six or eight moving lights, which we used just to do like you know some like fancy stuff. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to see how that sort of worked out now. Uh, but I had I had all of these chases that were sort of, that were related to the music and uh, and to the colors that were in the video at least uh, initially, so I so I would uh, you know recreate those every day speedily in my extra three hours. <laughs> um, if if somebody is sort of in a position where they're being asked to work with an artist like this or work on a you know, a series of shows like this, and they're not used to this sort of, well, every day you're going to have a different set of fixtures, every day you're going to have a different rig, and every day it's going to be a different venue, and you don't have a ton of control over where the lights go. Uh, how would you advise them to, to what, what would you tell them is the way in and how to, and how to get, into this, get into this mindset? Well, uh, your, your way in is that you know the song. Uh, so... I feel like I keep the cueing pretty consistent from night to night, even though the things that I'm making those cues with aren't necessarily always the same. Uh, like I know in Feathers Not a Bird, I'll get brighter, sort of in the brighter, and then it sort of comes down into a more focused part on her, and then it'll get brighter again. You know, so that's consistent from night to night. 
It's actually less about what the things are and more about what you're doing with them. That makes um, sense. And keeping that sort of consistent in your mind. So I, I, I think about, like, I like to do, like, builds at the ends of songs, you know, as the, like, crescendo is coming, you know, da, 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 boom, you know. Yeah. And so I'll... Uh, you know, so the thing that I am doing that with can vary quite a bit from night to night. Um, you know, sometimes it's the psych, and sometimes I have my crazy little ground row at the bottom, and sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's something else altogether. But um, but the point is that I do that at, at that moment, and I get it. Uh, so the timing is more the timing is and sort of following it is more important than necessarily what the elements are. I do feel like I'm sort of playing an instrument a little bit uh, along with the band because it's all laid out on submasters. It's all, you know, I'm controlling it manually. Uh, so I do feel like I'm watching the musical director and I focus on the drummer quite a bit and I do feel like I'm playing along with them. Uh, and I can tell, like, when I nail the ending with them, like, I can tell that, like, the audience response is more... Um, and I, I can tell also that it's less when I screw it up, and uh, so sometimes sometimes it's hard to like pin down who screwed it up. Sometimes we kind of all screw it up together. <laughs> uh, but you know, when 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 we're on, we're on, and you can really uh, you can really feel it. Do you have musical training? No, <laughs> uh, I uh, I took some trumpet lessons uh, as a child. Um, there's actually not a lot of instruments that you can play uh, with one hand. But uh, the trumpet is one. Uh, but I actually took a lot of ballet lessons as a child, uh, which, although it's not exactly musical training, I think uh, is sort of along the same lines because you're using your body as the instrument. Oh, and timing and structure. So, and timing and structure. And There's definitely some, something there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's a, so those pathways are formed in, in my brain in some way, but it's not in a very like formal uh, way at all. So moving on to theater, you've, yeah. you know, we talked about you've, you've assisted on Broadway, you've worked at just about every level of theater there is, all the way down to Fringe Festival. Yeah. What's, yeah. what's a good example of, what's a good example show for you theatrically, just as a designer, like for any the assistant stuff for a second? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so what I was saying before is my favorite type of theater, uh, unfortunately, is the, like, high concept art in a basement type of production. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's sort of what I'm most, well, most interested in. Most of the best shows I've seen have been like that, so I understand, yeah. I understand, I understand it. Yeah, so that, that's what I'm most interested in, and that's sort of what I gravitate towards. Um, and now that I've especially found that I can make my money doing uh, other things like music and uh, uh, consulting and things like that, I'm actually sort of gravitating more away from the the few types of theater that pay because it, when you get right down to it, theater is sort of, well, it's, it's a little above modern dance on the pay scale, but uh, it's still pretty bad right now. The uh, sort of a group of union designers is reviewing the off Broadway situation. Uh, there's sort of, there's a promulgated rate sheet, but nobody actually pays any attention to it. And so sort of we've done a lot of work to, sort of evaluate how much we're actually getting paid for our time and sort of try to bring that to the union's attention and try to uh, try to sort of bring about change. Um, all, all of which is to say that uh, e even theater with budgets still doesn't pay very well. So 
I've found that I would sort of, I'd rather do like a really interesting piece in a basement somewhere uh, than work on Broadway. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so, so that's what I'm doing. And also that's, you know, that's the people I know. So those are the people who are calling me at this point. But I guess probably my favorite play from the last few years is Homesick by The Assembly. Okay. Uh, and they are a young company. A lot of them are Wesleyan grads. Uh, and I got introduced to them sort of accidentally. I once did a show in the Fringe Festival with this woman years ago. And then in grad school, she was roommates with one of the guys from the assembly. And she just gave him my name. And and, th and this, incidentally, is why I still do Fringe shows, because I'm like... I'm like, maybe I'll like meet somebody who will introduce me to somebody amazing five years from now, or I, you never know. Um, it is true, you never know. Yeah, no, so you, you never know how these things are going to pan out. Um, but Homesick was a documentary play that the Assembly created about the history of the Weather Underground and their uh, attempt to bring about the socialist revolution in the United States, uh, which uh, obviously didn't succeed. I'll say that again. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and they used a lot of original source material and um, interviews with them. The, the play is fiction. Uh, most of the characters are maybe loosely based on somebody, or but they're not like really recreating uh, people for the most part. And I came into that process while they were still, I guess they'd done a workshop, but they hadn't really put anything up on its feet yet. And they're still sort of like working on the draft. I sort of think of that show more as a sort of more of an installation piece, uh, like sort of more of a sculpture. I think of my lighting for the show as more of an installation piece. Okay. What do you mean by um, that? So it was originally done in the collapsible hole in Williamsburg, which is no longer a theater, but uh, was basically a garage. So, and it wasn't very big. I would say the whole thing is probably about the size of this room. This we're in, we're in the Uptown Armory, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was a, it was a very small uh, claustrophobic room. And uh, the assembly was able to rent it for the entire month of July uh, for very cheap um, because the space was mostly unair conditioned and nobody in their right mind would want to be in there in July. Um, there, there was sort of one very inadequate air conditioner in the back, um, you know, like a little window unit. Um, but it was like wildly uninsulated, and I'm sure, I'm sure it was just as bad in January. So they had the whole month to work on the space, uh, to work on the piece in the space. Uh, and the space had about uh, 12 dimmers that it came with, and uh, we rented a couple more little four-packs. So I think we got up to 24 eventually. So that play sort of turned out to be my homage to the last uh, days of the 100-watt incandescent bulb. Okay. Sort of as I would watch rehearsal, I would sort of identify, uh, like, key areas uh, of, the, of the space and how they were using it. And uh, we hung, uh, you know, just a bunch of, like, clip light hoods and a couple of bare bulbs. Uh, and there was some other stuff. There was a mirror ball and... There actually were a couple of Source 4 pars that uh, went kaboom uh, in the explosion. Um, but it sort of developed gradually over time, uh, sort of starting with uh, items that were 
hanging around and in the space and, you know, things that were in my closet. So it developed organically as the piece went along. I, I feel like this is a kind of development and a kind of work that we don't talk about very much. When, when I do legit theater, I kind of miss this kind of opportunity to sort of see what develops and add things and take things away. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really satisfying when you can sort of be involved in, you know, when there's time to work through it, uh, sort of with all of the elements and, you know, you can really like be involved, like even as the script developed, like I, uh, I refrained from doing any research about the Weather Underground because I didn't really know anything about them. So I was trying to like keep myself uh, like like as a clean mind for whether or not the script made sense. Um, and I, you know, like wound up giving a lot of uh, notes after the first read through about things that you know places where I was confused and uh, you know things that didn't make sense. So it's it sort of it was about a lot more than the lights. Uh, I feel like it, you know, it was really. It was like the whole the whole piece uh, sort of developed together. What is it that makes this kind of theater so much more like dance, where the designers are treated seriously like collaborators? You know, they're not the designers who create the world. They are collaborators and as, you know, as much as anyone else on the team versus the sort of theater that you get taught in school and the theater that you see in, you know, most regional houses and, and, and legitimate. Yeah. What is it, what is it that makes it different? And why is it different? I, I mean, I feel like the the sort of biggest element is time. You know, just uh, sort of having time in the space. So uh, on sort of the model the American theater works on, nobody can afford to, you know, pay everybody to be in the space together for a month. Uh, or, or nobody does that. And I feel like this sort of, you know, sort of like hired gun mentality has developed uh, because designers are having to do so many more shows just to stay afloat. You know, it's gotten harder and harder to have a meeting. Uh, like, I don't know if you've noticed that, but I have. But like in the old days, you used to like actually sit down with the team and like have a couple of meetings and like somehow there would be time for that. And now it's like everybody is pulled in so many different directions and they have to take so many shows, you know, just to make ends meet that it's like you'll be lucky if you'll get together one time when everybody can be in the in the room at, at one time. It's like you, you've been on these email chains where, you know, somebody's trying to, like, propose a meeting and everybody's, like, in, in Outer Mongolia or whatever. And, yeah, no, it, it is it is hard to quantify because I, I've never really like collected data about it, but uh, I do feel theater has definitely developed this like time crunch uh, that is sort of antithetical to how it's meant to be created. So, so we've kind of accidentally built this version of theater that isn't a whole lot like what theater could be or maybe should be. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I I do feel like it's sort of sort of become more commodified, you know, and, and people are brought in, you know, because people don't have time to be present through the rehearsal process. So they just come in at the end and just, you know, quickly do a thing. And then I don't know what the answer is really, except it, in my case, I've kind of opted out. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I don't really know what the answer is. I mean, uh, it's hard to imagine that sort of a European model of arts funding would ever happen in this country. And, and if it did, it, it is no guarantee it would repair this problem. 
Yeah, no. I, yeah, I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know what would repair this problem. Um, but I know it's just, it's gotten harder and harder and sort of more and more uh, frustrating to work this way. So, uh, so you, you found a way to keep working this way. Yeah. Which yeah. is awesome. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, not, you know, not for my bank account, but, um, but uh, it, is, it is very interesting. You know, so you just have to find ways that you can make money doing uh, other things that don't take absolutely all your time. Uh, a lot of my friends and I have talked about what happens when your hobby becomes your job. Because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of us got into this because we love the art and, you know, got into it through doing it in school or whatever, or, you know, or doing it in, in some sort of like low stakes way. And then eventually it turns into your job. So, you know, do you have to do you have to find a different hobby? Like, do you have to find some way to, you know, to sort of like get back into the thing that drew you into it in the first place? Or I don't know. It's a it's a hard balance. Right. Uh, what else can you tell me about the theater stuff you're up to now or have been up to in the past? Oh, what about Strandberg Rep? Oh, yeah. You were so a founding member of that, right? It's uh, basically the brainchild of Robert Greer, who is on a mission to do the complete works of August Strindberg uh, in New York in the course of the next decade. Uh, Strindberg wrote a lot of plays, many of which you've never heard of. Yeah, so uh, he just uh, is on a mission to do this, and he's a couple years into it. I guess the first one we did was in 2012, but he's been doing them at a rate of about two a year. It's an interesting undertaking. Where are these shows being performed? Oh, they're at the Gene Frankel Theater. Yeah. What can you tell me about your process when it comes to theater? I heard a little bit about your process when it comes to music. Oh, yeah. I guess it's sort of a similar arc. You know, I start with the play. I've actually sort of become very systematic about this. Uh, I read it uh, once just to read it. Uh, Then I read it a second time, and I make myself a really detailed outline of... uh, sort of everything that happens uh, so that I can flip through it in five or six pages instead of, uh, you know, a whole hundred-page script, which I actually do with songs, too, by the way. I'll make myself a little script uh, for the song. Um, But I start there, uh, and in that outline, I underline any uh, sort of lighting things that I need to be aware of, like, you know, I'll start, like, the location and time of day at the top of the scene and you know, sirens, you know, police beacons, you know, so I'll sort of like make notes about things like that that are obvious in the script. Uh, And then I'll keep that outline with me while I'm uh, talking through the play with the director and I'll, you know, write down things that come out of that conversation, usually in a different color pen. So I know, uh, I know who originated the thought. And then I sit down with that list uh, with or with that outline, and I make myself uh, a one-page list of all of the lighting ideas, uh, and it's really quick. It's like front light, back light, side light, you know, blue, front light, and the specials. Uh, just a little one-page list, uh, and then I'll sit down with the plot and just sort of start slogging through it. Uh, you know, through through each of those ideas one at a time. Um, I start with the really basic stuff. Um, you know, I always start with the front light and then the back light and then the side light because um, I can do the front light and the back light on the same piece of paper and then I mm-hmm. have to switch for the side light. So by the time I've sort of worked through the basic systems 
uh, I have a pretty good handle on how sort of how the whole plot is going to turn out. Uh, and I rarely hire anybody to draft the plot because uh, for me, the process of working it out and the process of drafting it are like basically the same. And I start with the most important stuff so that it gets in like the best spot. And then, you know, some like weird little special, you have more leeway about where you want to move it around. I agree with you completely about, you know, the process of drawing the plot like, and the process of entering information into the, into the light, right? Linking the light, right? And vector works. I understand that to a certain extent, but I find that I, I learn things that I could be doing better by entering information and, and then seeing, Oh, you, you, maybe you could have done this differently. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there's an error here that you didn't see. Yeah, and that's actually, I uh, don't turn on the the conversation between LightWrite and Vectorworks either, um, partly because at first I was mistrustful that it would actually work. Um, and now it's it's more like, I yeah, I use that opportunity to like error check myself, because I, I, do, I do it all on the plot. I enter the purposes and the channel numbers, um, sometimes the color if I already know, but I usually don't. Uh, and then I export it to the LightWrite, and then I go through the light right, and I go through the channel hookup first, and then the instrument schedule, and I find all kinds of things when I mm -hmm. do that. Yeah, I feel like you definitely have to look at it from all the different angles. I used to draft for other people back in the early days of Vectorworks. I was actually one of the sort of first people in town who knew Vectorworks. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, back in, back in the back in the nineties. I mean, so, so what do you do yeah, presentationally to to sell stuff to your clients? To clients. I, I I write and I, I talk to them. Um, I mean, because usually I'm hired by word of mouth anyway, so it's somebody who knows me or somebody has recommended me to them anyway. Uh, so it's sort of rare that I'm it's rare that I'm selling a proposal to somebody in that way. And when I am, it's um, you know it's like like the venue consulting. Uh, I'm sort of like writing a description of what the problems are you know, with their venue and sort of what, sort of making proposals about how to address them. So, uh, so, so the English degree, see, it's, uh, yes. you know, so it's, um, sort of so helpful. It's super helpful. Um, I've always said that like the single most important thing that I do is I write compelling and persuasive emails to producers to, uh, to explain to them why they're going to have to spend money on lighting equipment that they don't know what it is. And I, I'm a little, uh, I'm a little mistrustful of renderings also. I feel like every time I see, you know, like this one uh, venue that I'm consulting on right now, um, there's been a lot of publicity photos, and I, I keep seeing these photos, uh, you know, appearing in, like, the New York Times and, and things, and it's sort of a very fanciful rendering of yeah. uh, how the light would work in the space. And I, I sort of I feel anxious when I see these photos because I, I'm like, it's not really gonna be like that and and uh um the previous guest mike baldessari uh -huh. is is often talking about truth and rendering and that we need to we must have truth and rendering if you're going to produce renderings they need to be based in reality absolutely and, you know, yeah i i i have seen a lot of fanciful renderings of you know you know whether it's for an event people doing things that are physics wise impossible uh, yeah and and, yeah. It, and it's sort of who are you serving it, yeah, it, well, exactly. And, and it, it's sort of setting up like false expectations about what it's going to be because people really respond to pictures. Like a, a pretty picture can like go a long way in selling your idea. But um, 
I feel like people who aren't able to look at it with a critical eye and, you know, understand that, like, there's no source for that light that's yeah, coming from over yeah. there, you know, and if the if, if you wanted a light to be like that, you would see it right there. And yeah, not only is it, not yeah. only is there no source right on the drawing, you know, I know from looking at the plans for this place, there is no way to hang a position there. Right. And and if there were, it would be really unsightly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. Um, I think if you're going to render anything, like then you've got to find a way to do it accurately. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about Wingspace, uh, uh, Wingspace Theatrical Design. Yeah, Wingspace Theatrical Design. Uh, so people people sometimes think we're a company, but we're not really. Uh, we're a collective of uh, theater designers and uh, directors and dramaturgs. And our focus sort of now is mostly on like fostering community uh, among theater practitioners. Uh, so we host a lot of events. Uh, we have a annual uh, holiday party, which is uh, quite quite the do. Um, but we've we've started this uh, monthly salon series. We used to do it like two or three times a year, and now we're trying to really step it up and do it once a month. Uh, so we sort of come up with a topic that, or so usually one person comes up with a topic uh, that is in, of interest to them, and we invite some guests who sort of have expertise in that topic. Uh, sometimes it's more like a panel discussion and a presentation, and sometimes it's more of like a free-form uh, debate. But they're really, uh, we have wine and cheese. Uh, we have a little space out in the Old American Can Factory in Brooklyn. So get on our mailing list. Uh, we have a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, Where can people learn about, learn about those events? Wingspace.com. If you go to wingspace.com, you can uh, sign up for the mailing list. How did you get involved, and what are the goals that you hope to achieve working with them and, and, and doing oh. these events? Well, I got involved uh, sort of from the get-go. He doesn't really like to admit it, but it's really the brainchild of Lee Savage, who okay. was my classmate in grad school. So, you know, we spent three years, like, sitting three feet away from each other, and... I think his sort of original impulse was that it was really nice to spend that time in a studio with other designers because there's sort of a lot to be gained from having other people to interact with and other people to just, you know, you can just like turn to the person next to you and say, hey, what do you think about this thing? Or, Absolutely. Um, you know, it was uh, sort of a lot better than working in isolation in your apartment. So he was trying to sort of come up with a way to sort of continue that sort of spirit after we left school. And we do have a studio space. Not everybody rents space in the studio space. Now we've sort of expanded beyond just sort of creating a community among ourselves, and we're really trying to open it up to the wider theater design community as a whole. It's been good, and it's definitely, it's definitely evolved. I would say that it's actually been in existence in some form for about 10 years, uh, and it's definitely evolved. Okay, so, so just go to we'll the Facebook see. page and, and yeah. learn about the upcoming events? Yeah, yeah, the Facebook page and uh, wingspace.com. Okay. Um, and uh, sort of general thoughts. How do you sort of view the business as a whole right now and where it's going? It does feel like things are getting more commercial and sort of like there's less support in the not-for-profit sector, even though we've had what, seven years of a Democratic president, but it doesn't feel like... But I mean, I, I think I would make the case that, that it's not just in what we do that that's true. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I would say that that is probably... You know, it's about it, commodification 
brandification. Brandif- and, sort of, and sort of like, I don't, well, I don't want to say exactly fast food, but, um, you know, I, I feel like now, now I'm, now I'm going to sound old and cranky. Uh, but when we were doing Homesick, we put together a playlist for the intermission, and it was just like dumb pop songs from the, you know, from the era, so from the like late 60s and early 70s. And we were sort of remarking to each other about like how much better dumb pop songs from the late 60s and early 70s were than dumb pop songs from today. And I think it's because uh, it was more expensive to produce a record uh, in those days. So in order to get your record produced, like you had to convince somebody to make a like fairly serious investment in that and sort of like the level of, of musical skills in on the dumb pop songs was higher. And now I feel like things are really uh, like sort of mass produced and designed to sell in like the most innocuous way. And there's sort of like less, um, it's sort of less personal. I I know what you mean. So, do you have any any other thoughts for us? I I, I always say that lighting is is an art form for people who enjoy balancing their checkbooks. Uh, <laughs> like I don't know if you find that to be the case, but you know, but it, it's like it's a very math based art form. Do you think lighting is art? Oh yeah. Or do you think lighting is a part of art? Both. You're certainly enhancing some art that somebody else is doing, but you're definitely playing a part in it. Most people in the audience won't notice, but everybody will be affected by it. Are all designers artists? I think so. Yeah. What advice do you have for new folks? Well, be sure this is what you really want, because uh, it's not uh, it's not easy, um, and it's not very lucrative. You know, but there there are things about it that are fantastic. Like I love to be able to do different things. Uh, I love to be able to see different people every day and work on different projects and have more flexibility in my life. So there's definitely things that make up for the lack of income that goes along with it. If you'd be happy doing anything else, then you should probably do that because this is hard. That's a fair point. Uh, where can people learn more about you or see your portfolio? Oh, uh, wingspace.com slash Miriam. Yeah, I think your work is really, really engaging. I think it's uh, it's it's singular and it's oh, thank it's you. very artful and artistic. What should people see that they can see right now that might open up a new avenue in their minds for what this art form can be? Uh, I mean, I work with them, so I'm a little biased, but I'm really interested in the assembly right now. Um, I'm really interested in Taylor Mac. Uh, he's got some like really uh, you and me both exciting and out there stuff going on. Did you see the walk across America from Mother Earth? No, at La Mama? no, I didn't. Taylor Mac musical. Oh yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, no, his. Uh, I know there's something coming up at Playwrights Horizons, and there's also a uh, there's something at BAM, I think. Um, oh, the flick at Barrow Street. Have you seen? Was it? It's maybe, maybe it closed. Um, that was fantastic. That was probably the best thing I saw over the summer. Um, but I, I mean, I would really say just see as many different things as possible. Keep your eye out for preview tickets, uh, you know, when they're cheaper and the discount codes and, you know. Um, Where do you go to recharge or what do you do to recharge or sort of re-energize? Oh, um, well, I just, I like to, I like to get outside and, um, you know, I like to 
sort of be among trees and and water and uh, things like that. My mom lives uh, in upstate New York. Uh, she has a house on a little lake uh, up there, so I really like going up there and just uh, you know sitting and looking at the lake. Um, I really like large bodies of water, like Coney Island. Uh, it's good to remember that we live on an island, uh, I think. Central Park is always good. Central Park <laughs> yeah. is always good, yeah. Yeah, I like to go uh, when it snows. You know, uh, when there's a big snowstorm, I like to put on my big snow boots and hike around in Central Park, and especially as it's kind of getting dark and you can't really see the city out there. And, and kind of, I mean, you can't really get lost in Central Park because if you walked in one direction long enough, you'd run into an edge, but... It, it is true, you know, uh, nature is a great source for inspiration for us and for lighting. You know, and there, there are times you'll see nature do something that you think, if I did this on stage, no one would believe me that this quality of light exists in nature. Oh, or that this kind of sky could exist in nature. Absolutely, absolutely. I was, um, I was out at the Santa Fe Opera one summer in college, and I was riding in the backseat of a car, and I looked out my window, and the sky is like bright mauve, and there are not one but two rainbows like going straight up that I can see, you know, like straight up out of the ground next to me. And I was like, if you put that on a psych, everybody would think it was preposterous. Oh, Miriam, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I hope folks can and we'll check out Wing Space and check out your work. Yeah, yeah. No, we've, um, you know, we've got a salon coming up next Monday. Well, who who knows when you'll be listening to this, but we'll, we're trying to do one a month, so... Yeah, just come check it out. All right, have a good afternoon. Okay, thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading, and have a good show. Let's get the gold, come to you.